Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Primal Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, and anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, Mark Sisson. Hey everyone, Mark Sisson here with the Primal Blueprint Podcast, coming to you from the beautiful Primal Blueprint Podcast studios in Malibu, where life is always awesome. I got to say, it was really awesome yesterday. I was paddling about a half mile offshore and um, had a pleasant encounter with two 50-foot whales. Got really close to them, kind of spooky, but really awesome, and uh, bringing back the power of uh, nature and uh, that awe-inspiring um, aspect of life that we tend to maybe drop out a little bit because of our um, focus on technology and all the things that we have to do. So anyway, I'm uh, particularly pumped today about that. I'm also pumped because today I'll be chatting with Sarah Ballantyne, aka The Paleo Mom, the blogger behind the award-winning blog, thepaleomom.com, co-host of the top-rated and syndicated The Paleo View podcast, and New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Approach, The Paleo Approach Cookbook, and The Healing Kitchen. Today, we'll discuss her newest book, Paleo Principles, which offers a complete foundation for understanding the principles of the paleo template in order to inform and empower people's day-to-day choices. I love that word, choices. Talk about it all the time. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Oh, thanks, Mark, for having me. Always a pleasure. I'm trying to think the last time we... We saw each other. We see. I think we see each other like once or twice a year. Yeah, it's like Paleo Facts Ancestral Health Symposium. Yeah, that's it. But we're always sort of connected on that spiritual level that is Paleo. You know, we talked before the show began today a little bit about what you wanted to discuss, and um, you know, you your idea about um, really re-exploring physiology and cell biology and getting people to understand their choices based on the science. You have a PhD in medical biophysics and a research background in inflammation and epithelial cell biology. So how does that background affect how you approach your understanding of ancestral diets? So I I think that what my background really allows me to do is it allows me to dive into the scientific literature and really get at the why. So I think that when we look at anthropology, uh, evolutionary biology, we have this idea of, okay, we've, we've got a fairly good understanding of what, you know, Paleolithic man ate through a couple million years of evolution. Um, and we've got this idea that, you know, they didn't suffer from chronic disease and there was probably multiple factors that contributed to that. What I want to do is when we're, we're looking at taking that information and applying it to our modern lives, and we, we kind of want to pick and choose the stuff that's going to give us the best, you know, bang for our buck, that that's going to make big health impacts for not too much self-sacrifice. We want to take that and and apply it to our general lives. In order to be able to do that, we have to know why. Why is this food better than this food? 
why is this sleep habit better than this sleep habit? Why is this type of activity better than this type of activity? And to answer that question, we really need to understand the the impact that compounds in foods have, as well as things like stress and sleep and activity. We need to know the impact that those things have on our bodies at the cellular level. So we need to know what's happening to the cells that that form our gut barriers. We need to know what's happening to our immune cells. We need to know what's happening to hormone regulation. We need to know what's happening to the gut microbiome. And in order to answer those questions, we really need to be diving into physiology, cell biology, patho um, physiology, and really understanding, you know, this is about where the rubber meets the road, really understanding what is it in a food that is going to support my health, right? Nutrients is really what we're talking about there. And what is in, you know, foods that are have become really common in our society that is actually undermining our health. And then from there, we've got this like entire scientific foundation that informs day-to-day choices. And I, I've really come to believe that the key to fixing, you know, this epidemic of chronic illness that we have in our society now, it really starts with scientific literacy. And it really starts with taking this information, taking the time to digest it, and then translating that for the average person. Right. And so your kind of stated mission, which I'm assuming is pretty much mine, is to take this uh, rather complex um, collection of um, physiology, cell biology, microbiology, um, gene gene biology, and kind of uh, distill it into terms that the layperson can understand so that they can make the kind of decisions that would um, more favorably impact their longevity and their enjoyment of life. Is that an accurate statement? I think that's very accurate. I try very much to, um, in my distillations and in my uh, sort of communication of what, what you know, the scientific body of research is currently telling us about a specific topic, I try very much to not dumb the information down and instead um, and I can do this because my my background allows me to understand these concepts in such detail. Um, instead, take a little bit more time to really explain these concepts in a little bit more detail. So I I try to sort of stay away from analogies and instead, uh, you know, try to do a lot of uh, translation. Right? This is what you know a leukocyte is a type of white blood cell. Right? So to give you know take the 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 jargon out of it, but at the same time take a little bit more time to really give the, the full picture of, of what this biological process is. Um, so I tend to write in a very verbose way because I think that in order to, to um, provide a little bit more of a detailed scientific background behind some of these topics, I, you know, it just takes a little bit more time if I'm writing to somebody without a science background. But I do try to one-up a lot of the current science writers by um, going into just a little bit more detail in terms of in terms of the the mechanisms behind something, um, which in some ways is sort of playing to a different audience. But for me, I think knowing and really, really knowing the reason why this food is a better choice than this food motivates me to make that better choice, even if it's a harder choice. And I, I don't think I'm alone in that. I think there's a lot of people out there who um, really do better sticking to um, a, some kind of dietary guidelines or lifestyle guidelines when they have that deeper understanding of why those things are important. Yeah, I, I agree, obviously, 100%. And I'm a big fan of the the experiment, you know, the N equals one mantra, that, the meme that's floated around the internet, the paleosphere for the last 10 years. Um, you know, I, I'm 
doing my my work on uh, ketogenic diets now because of a book deal that I have coming into the next year, and so I'm spending a lot of time in ketosis. And and um, if even if I didn't understand the science behind what I was doing, um, the days that I elect to not be in ketosis, my my energy levels, my sleep, um, my focus are so uh, negatively impacted by this, I start to realize, wow, this is there's some pretty compelling evidence here that some of the choices I'm making when I'm, and by the way, when I say, you know, strict ketosis, it's, it's really strict about everything. It's almost like it's not even about ketosis. It's just about being what I would call full primal. Right. You know, it's, it's truly getting rid of the sugar that I, that I had um, maybe occasionally allowed in because I could get away with it. Um, it's, you know, truly paying attention to the timing of when I eat. It's truly not drinking, not just a little bit of wine, but no wine. And so I'm, you know, I, I start to notice, um, like once again, uh, some of those benefits from adhering to a prescribed dietary pattern that really works. And um, so when you say, you know, it's it's kind of nice for people to know um, the science behind why they're feeling the way they feel when they go off track, or why they feel so great when they're when they're adhering to their particular regimen or understanding why some people uh, can consume lentils and maybe others can't. Um, It's, you know, it's my, my reason for blogging for the last 11 years has been to same thing to kind of give people the informative scientific insights into why we would even be advising people to live this way and, and uh, you know, eat this way and sleep this way and so on and so forth. So um, it's all it's all a, a great uh, collection of um, uh, lifestyle practices, and I understand in your in your book you as a as a paleo um, maven, as a paleo aficionado and connoisseur, and everything else we want to call you because every one of your titles has been paleo. You expand that world into lifestyle behaviors as well, correct? Yeah. So I, um, you know, I've been talking, I've been shouting from the rooftops really about the importance of sleep, um, for a couple of years now. Um, but I, you know, I'm also talking about activity and, um, circadian rhythm entrenchment and stress management, um, and resilience to stress is sort of a, a whole different thing and social connection and really talking about these aspects of a paleolithic lifestyle that even within paleo primal ancestral communities now we are so happy to just uh you know we still put sleep on the back burner right we still have all of the other things on our to-do list that we want to do and we'll go out of our way to you know shop at the farmers market and cook all of our food from scratch and eat some liver <laughs> during the week and our you know copious quantities of vegetables and all of these other things um and yet you know Putting ourselves in bed at night is is such a challenge for for most people. It's a really really hard thing to um, to prioritize when there's so many demands on our time. And I think that what's happening right now is we're facing sort of a you know the most that we can get out of diet and exercise. I think you know diet and exercise have been really really key for the paleo um, and ancestral primal movements for a long time. Um, and I think we've sort of hit this wall where, you know, people who naturally 
sleep well. And naturally, you know, that's not a challenge for them are these like pinnacles of success in terms of their health with their changes. And then we're hitting this whole other group of people who just they've, they hit the most that they're going to get out of all of their efforts. And it's because there's this missing piece that has nothing to do with food and it has to do with uh, lifestyle. It has to do with are they actually carving out eight hours of sleep every night or do they have some kind of barriers to to getting good sleep. For example, they're spending too much time indoors. They're not outside. They're not getting that blue light exposure during the day. So by wrapping in the conversation with lifestyle, because they're they're completely linked, right? We know when you're not getting enough sleep, you're on average, you're going to snack more. You're going to average eat 400 more calories. You're going to crave uh, high energy foods, especially sugar. You're going to naturally you know, lean towards wanting fast food instead of vegetables, you're even going to spend more money in the grocery store and buy more junk food in the grocery store. So if you're trying to make diet changes, right, getting enough sleep is almost a prerequisite. We know that sleep has uh, perhaps an even bigger impact on your insulin sensitivity than what you eat. So these things go hand in hand. And I think that you kind of have to talk when you're talking about making changes to improve your health, you have to pull all of these things together. You really have to draw the connections, first of all, between, you know, lifestyle and and diet and really say, hey, you know, when you're stressed, you're going to crave high energy foods and you're going to deplete your body of important nutrients like magnesium and vitamin C. So that's a really important thing to get under control. Uh, hey, by the way, increasing your omega-3 fatty acids is going to regulate your cortisol response to psychological stressors, right? So we've got this, this give and take between diet and lifestyle. So you kind of have to um, you ha kind of have to like big picture it. You kind of have to bring it all together because it's so intertwined in terms of its direct impact on really important systems in our body, like insulin regulation, like leptin regulation and sensitivity, um, like stress hormones, like thyroid hormones, like uh, sex hormones and reproduction. Like all of those things have have you know they're they're all different inputs to health and. Um, I think we get very focused on um, the thing that looks hard, which I think is food. I think we, we get, you know, I, I remember when I first heard about the paleo diet and I looked at this list of foods I wasn't supposed to eat anymore. And I went, well, that's crazy. No, I don't, I'm not giving up bagels. What are you, are you insane? So we kind of look at this thing. We go, oh, yeah, that's going to be really hard. I'm going to do that. And then it's not that hard, right? It's it's not hard to eat whole foods and eat meat and vegetables. It's not It's not really like once you get through your learning curve, you're fine. Oh, it's the biggest, you know, eye-opening surprise that anyone who thinks they can't do it um, ultimately realizes. You mean I get to eat all this awesome, you know, high-fat, healthy-fat food um, and claim that it's that it's good for me? This is this is spectacular, and all I have to do is avoid this kind of list over here that's got some, you know, not really enticing uh, items on it anyway. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's it's a pretty compelling argument for uh for the paleo diet but what you know one of the things I, i've realized recently is um so much of what we're doing now must be backed by modern science and so much of what we're recommending kind of based on an ancestral model of necessity has to um has to demonstrate and exemplify the changes based on actual gene regulation you know switches turning on and off virtually every paper you read in the scientific literature um, looks at the effect of whatever the variable is on gene expression. Yeah. So the question for you is, at, at what point do we 
I'm not trying to sound sacrilegious here, but at what point do we leave the term paleo behind and just go, uh, well, these are just lifestyle behaviors that were originally informed by some ancestral um, suggestions, but were proven um, to work on modern humans based on, you know, these laboratory settings or the design of a study and the impact on genes. Yeah, I actually think that uh, sort of transcending the term paleo or the term primal or the term ancestral or traditional, right, all of these different, you know, this family of diets that all sort of boil down to the, the same general principles. Um, I think that time is approaching. I'm really within the next decade, I think, is is going to be the time to sort of make this transition beyond a label. And I think that it comes from two things. So it comes from first, really, um, you know, leaders in this community, like the amazing work that you've done, really bringing this uh, focus on contemporary research into all of these topics. Um, it's why I write from that same perspective. We look at contemporary, you know, science and how um, that can inform our understanding of what foods are better choices, et cetera. And I think you look at things like, you know, the last USDA guidelines when they came out, uh, people in our community lambasted them. They got so angry. Oh, they still have this, you know, it was almost like a plant-based diet sort of um, bias, right? And they're still plugging lentils and they're still, right, they still have grains in here. <laughs> and, and I looked at it and went, holy smokes, the jumps from five years earlier are insane. The idea of breaking vegetables into groups based on color, phenomenal, because we know that that's really, really important. This huge vegetable focus, this movement away from empty calories and starting to look at grain-based foods as empty calories, which they are. And so I look at, I look at this eventual sort of convergence of what uh, is sort of current mainstream healthy diet advice and where our movement is going. And I, I think we're going to hit this point where we, we all sort of have to ditch the labels and what we just call uh, the healthy diet when your doctor says, oh, you, you just need to eat better. What they mean is eat a lot of vegetables, eat quality meats, eat some seafood, think about snout to tail, think about a little bit of fruit and maybe some nuts and seeds, but all of that in moderation. Think about healthy fats, think about herbs and spices. And, you know, all of the things that form the foundation of, of the paleo diet now. And I think where we're going to face um, probably some really interesting community discussions is around some of the foods in which the science is not really cut and dry. You know, these are foods that have um, some a lot of checks in the in the cons, you know, ca column, and that's why they're not considered like lentils, which you mentioned earlier, not considered paleo right now. But you know, these foods also have a lot of checks in the pros category. You kidding me? I mean, this whole discussion about the microbiome in the last that opened up in the last, well, last two years for sure started about five years ago. What are you going to feed your, you know, your healthy gut bacteria if you're restricting a lot of the, um, you know, the fibrous material that you might find in certain legumes? Well, and when you look at, um, you know, like Dr. Jeff Leach's work for the the Human Food Project. And he's looked at the fiber intake of hunter-gatherers all over the world, and they're on average consuming 50 grams to 200 grams of, of fiber a day. Um, you know, USDA guidelines are 25 grams for women and 38 grams for men, and most Americans hit maybe about a quarter of that. But on even on a paleo diet, without something like lentils, getting to 30 
to 40 grams a day is a huge struggle. And we're still falling short of hunter gatherers in part because they do things like, uh, like we cut off, you know, we snap the the tough part of the asparagus off the asparagus. Well, a hunter gatherer is not going to waste that part of the asparagus or the the similar plant that they have. They're going to gnaw on that and they're going to get that all the fiber that's in that. And we go, oh, it's it's I have to chew that when well, we have to chew it because it's got you know a lot of hemicellulose fiber in it. Um, but the other thing is, you know, legumes, which are such dense fiber choices, with a healthy gut microbiome, we are able to liberate a lot of the minerals that are bind up with anti-nutrients in those foods. With traditional preparations, we're, allowed, we're able to um, completely, in some cases, different legumes, right? It's different legumes, depend and depending on the preparation, we maybe can't uh, deactivate all of the anti-nutrients in them, but some of them we can. And I think we start to go like, well, hey, if we look at, you know, properly soaking and doing this, the low and slow, long, prolonged cooking time of these foods, any, you know, argument that we're going to make based on physiology, based on uh, putting foods on this like balance of what does this food have in it that's good for me, right? What are all the vital nutrients in this food, the fiber, the essential fatty acids, the essential amino acids versus what's in this food that might, you know, harm me in some way or, or undermine some biological system. Okay. You know, like the you know, prolamines and agglutinins and saponins and all of these things that we talk about in this community. Well, when you start looking at something like lentils and a traditional preparation of lentils, you, you, can't, you can't make that argument anymore. No, on balance, you, you, you suggest that it's a pretty uh, beneficial food. Not only be, and by the way, the term anti-nutrient has been so miscast in the last 10 years, and I would take a little bit of responsibility for helping use that term um, because it assumes that, that there's a good and bad list and everything over here is good and everything over here is bad or that there's a right and wrong way to do this. Right. Um, but you know, one of the arguments, uh, the initial paleo argument about against lectins, lectins, lectins suck. They're bad. Um, you know, they, they rip your gut open and have all these, you know, negative impacts. And then it, as, as often happens, the pendulum swings a little bit the other way and you go, wait a minute, some of these lectins, um, may actually be beneficial either from a short-term hor- hormetic effect. Um, they might prompt a certain, uh, pathway in the immune system that that might be the reason that that they were consumed um, avidly in the first place uh, but to suggest that because it's a lectin which in and of itself is a broad term that it's bad uh, is sort of misusing the science and kind of glossing over all of the potential that exists with that particular food not not the least among which is it simply adds variety to an otherwise um, you know, pretty narrow palette of choices. Yeah. So I think this brings back what you were talking about of the N equals one experiment. So I think that, you know, one of the things I've done in paleo principles is I've actually, I've got three different sections, about 20 chapters or 25 chapters talking about food. And I've got a section of these foods that are clear winners, right? These super nutrient dense foods that um, really don't have any substantial amounts of anything problematic in them, like the, just the clear winners. And then, you know, these foods that are clear losers. And I mean, I start with, you know, processed manufactured foods full of, you know, food chemicals and dyes and high fructose corn syrup and like the things that, you know, the junk food. Um, and I talk about, you know, gluten and wheat germaglutinin and, and glycoalkaloids and similar compounds in other, in other foods. Um, but then I have this whole chapter for, 
uh, or this whole section for foods that like lentils, the arguments start to, to fall away and it becomes it becomes a here's what you need to know. Here's all the pros in this food. Here's the potential cons in this food. Now, go experiment with that food. Go figure out what your individual tolerance is to grass-fed dairy, to rice, to properly prepared legumes. Um, understand what your tolerance is to vegetables from the nightshade family, like tomatoes. I don't think those are a clear win. I think there's some really inflammatory compounds in them. So go experiment with that and understand your body and how how not just you respond because that's in, in part that's your genetics that's your health history but that's also your stress level and how well you you sleep and the overall nutrient density of your diet and how well your insulin and leptin are currently regulated right all of those things are feeding into how you're going to respond to an individual food but i think that at the end of the day we need to kind of uh, back away from these really sort of dogmatic rules about that food is okay and that food is the devil. And we need to start looking at, um, you know, the nuances. What is in this food that that makes it such a great food? What is in this food that might make it a poor choice for me? And then start looking at the quality of a person's overall diet, the the quality of their lifestyle choices in general, and let give people the tools that they need to identify trigger foods for them and identify what is, um, you know, I talk a lot about finding that line between what is optimal for you, what makes you your healthiest and what your body tolerates and what's going to be okay if you have it once in a while, and then living your life somewhere in between those two lines. Um, so when you're, you're, you're sick or you're stressed, you'll probably want to go back to optimal when it's uh, a wedding, you're going to definitely choose, you know, to live closer to where you tolerate. But, you know, you need to experiment with yourself. You need to try some of these foods and see how your body reacts. You need to have a, a you know, a, a sort of a cleansing period of time beforehand, right? The sort of elimination and challenge idea. But you need to you need to experiment on yourself to know where those lines are for yourself so that you can take that information and now go live your life and make your best choices. And I suspect that there are times when um, certain foods are going to be much more offending or offensive to you than others. For instance, if you've, you're coming off of a, a lifetime of um, having done severe metabolic damage to yourself, um, where you've got probably um, an exacerbated leaky gut, um, which, is, which is in and of itself um, problematic and, and may mean that certain foods that you otherwise would not have an issue with are now very problematic – um, you probably or more likely have a, a gut dysbiosis, so the, the microbiome in your gut is all messed up to the extent that that there's even a, a FODMAP diet. I, it's kind of interesting because a FODMAP diet in my mind is, you know, it's a very, um, it's a great place to start if you have a severe dysbiosis or a gut biome problem. But the irony is once you fix yourself, the FODMAP diet is actually probably supportive of a healthy good, uh, uh, gut biome. Yes. So... Uh, you know, there it's kind of ironic in that in that at different times of your life, uh, there are different foods that are going to be offensive um, or not uh, based on the current state of your health. So, are you is that in alignment with what you're suggesting here? Yeah, absolutely. So, I think that there's um, ways that we can understand foods and choose foods to really take them to a therapeutic level, and that depends on our individual situation. So, um, you know, I I have a, a 
a pretty strong background talking about the autoimmune protocol and modifying paleo for people with autoimmune disease. The entire structure of that, you know, sort of more specific version of the paleo diet is about um, flooding the body with nutrients because the immune system is a huge nutrient hog and uses nutrient resources like no other system in the human body. So it's about providing the immune system with all of the nutrients that it needs to actually function properly while recognizing that if you have autoimmune disease, first of all, you have a genetic predisposition to immune system that's just going to get up to shenanigans from time to time. And also you you have now an overactive immune system that's a- attacking yourself. You, the last thing you want to throw on top of that is more fuel to the fire. So you, you don't want to be consuming foods that have inflammatory compounds in them, even if those are foods that are normally really well tolerated by a healthy person. So you look at that situation, but that's that's a intervention. So the autoimmune protocol in its just in its definition is uh, an elimination diet with a challenge, you know, period of time where you start adding back in some of those foods once you're starting to feel good because there's foods that um, can have really beneficial nutrition to offer us that yes, it's got some inflammatory compounds, but once the immune system is starting to figure its stuff out, you can you can throw a little bit of, you know, if you throw gasoline just on a cold fire, it's not going to it's not going to explode. So you can start to play with some of those those foods again. And I think that we can look at a lot of situations and go, what's the what's the therapeutic intervention here? So we can look at, you know, cardiovascular disease risk. And we know we really need to be addressing some key nutrients like CoQ10. We really need to be addressing the uh, omega-3 to omega-6 um, imbalances that are almost certainly contributing. We really need to be looking at gut microbiome. Um, you know, we really need to be looking at, you know, some key like vitamin D, right? Some key nutrients that are going to be really important for for vascular health. We can get to a point where we've, you know, completely reversed whatever, you know, risk factors were going on there, whether that was, you know, high triglycerides and high blood pressure or whatever. And then you can start to go, okay, like where's, where's the maintenance here? Um, and I think that, um, and the FODMAP, right, uh, low FODMAP diet for SIBO, again, it's it's a phenomenal intervention. Um, but it if when taken to that extreme of like, wow, I felt really great when I adopted the, the low FODMAP diet, so I'm just going to do this forever, it can lead to undergrowth because you're cutting out some of the most fermentable fibers that feed some of the most desirable probiotic strains in our guts. So I think that we can very, we can sort of create this like broad template. And then within that, we can create these, these separate little categories of, you know, and if you have weight loss as a goal, well, caloric restriction is actually prerequisite, right? You need, you need, it's not calories in and calories out. Yeah. You can't eat 4,000, 4,000 calories of fat every day. Like, like some of the books say, and, and lose weight effortlessly. Mm-hmm. Uh, science has really proven over and over and over again that a caloric deficit is a prerequisite for weight loss. So, okay, so if weight loss is your goal, here's here's this extra thing to keep in mind. If you're managing diabetes, you know, a measured carbohydrate approach is going to be really important. You can't just eat all of the cassava fries because they happen to be made in pasture-raised duck fat. You like you actually have to you know, measure your your carbohydrates at every meal in order to have a measured insulin response if you're at a place where you have, you know, broken insulin sensitivity. If we have cardiovascular disease risk factors, here's this other thing. And with cardiovascular disease risk factors, we can even use information about specific genes like APOE 
to then dial in even further. We know that people with APOE4, for example, really can't do high fat diets. Those are the people who, when they eat, you know, a substantial amount of fat, their their risk factors go through the roof. And those are the same people who we see a really strong correlation between lipid panels and cardiovascular disease events, right? We don't see that in everybody. But with APOE4 carriers, we do see that. So I think we can take this like broader template and, you know, just this sort of broader, like, here's the good things in foods, here's the bad thing in foods, go experiment on yourself. And then we can take these more specific interventions for individual situations and give people a really good toolbox for uh, reversing whatever health problems they're coming into this with. And then from there, launching into what is uh, just a general sort of preventative, right, diet as something that's the maintenance, the maintenance phase. Like, let's get healthy. And then once we're there, we've got typically a lot more flexibility in terms of of our specific implementation. So I hear you talking about um, CoQ10, uh, vitamin D levels, omega-3 levels. So you're a fan of supplementation. Um, I always think that food sources are superior. And when we get things like CoQ10 from sardines, we're not just getting CoQ10, we're getting, actually, well, we're getting omega-3s and vitamin D. That's kind of like the winner. Sardines are the, the heart, heart disease winner food. That's, that's mm. pretty much the summary right there. But when we can get those nutrients from whole food sources, we're typically getting a form that is more easily absorbed. We're typically getting it in synergistic quantities with other important nutrients. And we're typically getting other benefits, right? So in sardines is the example. We're also getting some of the most um, digestible, complete protein in the world. We're getting uh, vitamin A. We're getting a lot of zinc. Um, we're getting a lot of selenium, right? We've got some other really great nutrients in there compared to taking a CoQ10 supplement. So I think that that food is always the preferred source, but that doesn't mean that I'm anti-supplement. So I think that with um, educated food choices, we can get everything that we need from food. Um, but I think that when you're talking about situations where people are trying to mitigate specific chronic health problems, working with a functional medicine specialist, doing um, some sort of uh, micronutrient testing and understanding where they might be deficient and and how deficient in those micronutrients they are, and then doing some targeted supplementation. Like I think that's a place where that that makes some sense, right? Because I think if you are very deficient in CoQ10, and that's an easy blood test to know if you're deficient in CoQ10, um, I think that you, you could eat all the sardines, um, but to specifically bring that really important nutrient up, um, you can expedite that with a quality, a quality supplement. That doesn't mean that you're, you can't use supplements to make up for bad diet choices. Oh, for sure. Right. But but I, I, so I don't like the idea of them as a crutch or instead of eating those wonderful sardines. But I think that there are certainly situations where supplementation can be absolutely appropriate. You know, it's, um, it's my latest um, area of interest, and it's kind of a conundrum for me personally because, on the one hand, um, I'll talk to guys like Ron Rosedale, um, who will suggest that um, hormones and uh, certain um, signaling devices in the body. Um, it's not always about the level of the, of the signaling device. It's also about the, 
uh, the level of, of uh, receptivity, the, the receptors the cell, the, on, on the cell sites. Uh, and so that he might say, well, um, you know, uh, low insulin uh, isn't, a, isn't a problem for a lot of people if they've got insulin, you know, receptors. Receptivity. If they if they're insulin sensitive, it doesn't take that many, or maybe they have a lot more receptor sites. Um, so it, you don't always have to just look at the one level of the hormone. Right. Um, with regard to um, same thing with regard to like testosterone or, or estrogen, it isn't always just about the level of that hormone. It's it has to do with the interplay of the of the the messenger and the transmission and the reception of the of the of the signal because these are really just signaling devices. And so it's a it's an equation with regard to supplementation. Um, you know, you look at um, the prescription of say vitamin D levels when you get a vitamin D test on your blood, and there'll be a range of optimal. And uh, you probably know better than I do. I'm going to say 25 to 50 um, is probably you know an optimal range. Um, some people in the paleo community say, well, it's got to be above 35 or 40. You you have to get there to be be you know in an ideal situation. Well, I had my um, my genetics tested a couple of years ago, and it came back that I'm not a very good D, uh, producer of vitamin D, which may be why I crave to be out in the sun so much. Right, um, so that might be a normal um, effect of having this um, mitigated ability to, to create vitamin D. Um, so now, uh, because I don't, you know, I, I spend a fair amount of time in the sun, but I'm also aware that. At my age, I just don't want to get this, the wrinkly effect as well. So I supplement vitamin D. So, so back to I don't want you know take too much into this vitamin D thing, but I found it fascinating. You say, well, sardines, you know, a great source of vitamin D and omega three and CoQ ten uh, in balance. Um, but I'm not going to get the six to eight thousand units of vitamin D that I'm taking supplementally every day from sardines. So a couple of ways to look at that would be. Um, one is, well, maybe, Mark, you're the guy who doesn't need to have a level of 50 in your bloodstream. Maybe, in your case, a level of you know 28 is perfectly fine um, because of the, um, the, the rest of the biochemistry that, that, that governs your body. You know? And so it's this um, kind of a conundrum to go, okay, I'm trying to optimize my health. I'm, a, I'm kind of a tweaker slash biohacker here. What's what is the ideal intake for me, and how do I achieve that? And and is it am I doing myself um, a service by taking supplements, or am I doing myself a disservice? Oh, it's like the the it's like three cans of worms all at once. Um, you know, I think that. By the way, cans of worms. How much uh, vitamin D and uh, and CoQ10? A ton of vitamin D because they are they are pasture raised. <laughs> And organic, I'm pretty sure. Um, so I, I think, you know, vitamin D, I, I feel is a little bit of a different situation than a lot of other supplements because, you know, historically we lived outside. Um, we spent a lot of time outside. Um, you know, it wasn't until we were able to build these like large, modern, comfortable, you know, climate controlled homes that we and, and offices that we started spending a lot more time inside. And you know, vitamin D we do get from wild, you know, from animal foods that are outside. So our, our grass-fed beef, our wild game, our um, wild seafood, but even farm seafood has a good amount of, of vitamin D in it because it's still 
it's not grown in a swimming pool. It's grown usually in uh, farms along the shore. So there, there is a substantial amount of vitamin D in it, but it is something that really we also need to be supplementing with UV radiation on our skin. And, uh, you know, fun fact, when we're talking about sensitivity to vitamin D, the vitamin D receptor is based on a zinc molecule. And about 73% of Americans don't consume enough zinc every day. So we kind of have this like give and take between vitamin D and, you know, some other nutrients, right? There's a lot of um, vitamin D is controlling, for example, how we handle calcium and how much calcium is in our blood. Uh, fructose, um, too much fructose can, you know, cut right into that system and make it completely dysfunctional. We need enough zinc to be able to have um, receptor activity to vitamin D. Um, and so I think that with vitamin D, you know, in the absence of the situation where where people can just go spend a lot more time outside and, you know, most people don't necessarily have that flexibility in their lives. Um, I think getting tested and taking a supplement and being frequently retested because too high of vitamin D levels is also problematic. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm also a, a poor you know, vitamin D synthesizer. I also have to take vitamin D to keep my levels in a normal range. Um, and I, I don't feel like I'm failing at paleo because I have to take vitamin D in order to keep my levels fine. I think, well, that's just my, you know, genetic lot here. And um, it's something that makes a really, really big difference to the rest of my health. I think when you, when you look at food or food sources of food nutrients, so nutrients that we can't just synthesize because we're outside, um, I think you, you start to look at one of the great things about getting those nutrients from foods is it is really hard to overdo it. Whereas when you're supplementing um, it, you, you can, right? You, you can take too much. So we can see, for example, um, vitamin A toxicity. Um, so that's the retinoic acid, right? The animal form of vitamin A. We see toxicity levels, but all of that toxicity studies are done in supplementation. There's never been a case reported of somebody who had toxic amounts of vitamin A from eating a lot of liver. Or, by the way, from eating a lot of vegetables that have beta carotene, since beta carotene converts to vitamin A. Well, but at best, we convert about five to eight percent. But point but, being, point being, you know, there there's a, there are some safe ways to to top off that level. Just to interject here. For instance, over the years, I've had this, um, you know, my high my high potency supplement, uh, which has been um, uh, the Damage Control Master Formula. Uh, and the, mm -hmm. I've, you know, even though it's high potencies in all of the, or most of the uh, amounts that are in there, I, I met, I cap retinol at 2000 IU because I know that you can overdo that. Right. But then it's un almost unlimited in the beta carotene because there's a cutoff point. Right. Well, and that, now you're talking about providing a substrate for a controlled, you know, chemical reaction in the body. So when you are talking about providing a substrate, but your body still has control, that's again, a completely different type of situation. Um, one of the things that I wanted to like the, the, the first can, one of the things that you were talking about was um, this idea of, you know, we measure a lot of hormone levels, or we can measure specific nutrient levels, but we're not necessarily measuring receptor activity. And, and part of that is we don't, have assays for receptor activity that doesn't involve you chopping up bits of your flesh, right? Like if I took a, you know, giant core out of your forearm and then chopped that up in a lab, I could, we could tell a lot. Yeah. We could just, we, we could, could do we, so we, yeah, much. I know. Weirdly people don't want chunks of their body taken out for, for medical tests on a, 
regular basis. Oh, I think some of the people in the biohacking community would be all over that. Yeah, they might they might be like, that's not a you know not a deal breaker tetanus yeah. scar. That's a yeah. So you know, part of it is that we don't have simple assays that can be done on a blood sample or a saliva test or or a urinary sample, um, but there are some interesting. Um, assays that we can do for nutrient status that are functional assays. So there's one called SpectraCell. I don't know if you've heard of this, but what they do is they take red blood cells from a blood sample and they grow them in, I don't know how many, it's 20 or 30 different um, depleted media. So they're they're taking your cells, um, they're growing them in a lab and they've got one media that's depleted in zinc, one media that's depleted in vitamin D, one media that's depleted in, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, chromium, um, different B vitamins, right? Vitamin C. And what that does is that then they measure cell viability. So they look at how well does that cell survive in the depleted media? Because if that red blood cell has enough stored zinc in it, when it's grown in a zinc deficient environment, it's going to survive for longer than the red blood cell that didn't have enough zinc. And suddenly you're not looking at levels, but you're looking at does your cell have enough to be healthy? And um, that's suddenly a very, very different way of thinking about um, nutrient status. So instead of going, I'm going to take your blood and I'm just going to say you have this much zinc and this much calcium and this much phosphorus and whatever, um, I'm going to look at your blood cells and see how happy they are it, without these nutrients. If they're, if they're already deficient in those nutrients, they're going to die really quickly in that depleted media. So there are starting to be some tests that we have access to that are much more functional in their approach. So it's really looking at, you know, not your vitamin D level per se, but do your red blood cells have enough vitamin D in them are we using red blood cells as a proxy for all cells? Yes. Okay. And of course, that—that that is, there is a limitation there because different cells will have different nutrient requirements. Um, but in terms of a functional assay right now, that is the, the closest we have to, to being able to say, independent of the absolute level of those nutrients, how, you know, how is your body doing in terms of, you know, does it have enough of those nutrients to be healthy? Right. Cool. So um, we're coming toward the end of our discussion here. I, I know we could go for a couple more hours because uh, one one <laughs> door leads to another and so on and so forth. So a lot of the stuff that we've talked about today, you cover in your new book, Paleo Principles. Yes. I'm, so I'm super excited about it. It is um, – I still have not heard the uh, – wow, Sarah, this is too long. We can't bind this. Um, so I, I think we're still good. But um, it's coming out this fall and it has been for me, um, you know, I wanted to do uh, three things with this book. One is I wanted to bring people into the paleo movement from this scientific literacy perspective and really, really tackle, um, really tackle providing this broad scientific background and the other one was I really wanted to create a resource that really puts an end to the ridiculous critiques of paleo. That's unhealthy because it's an all meat diet. That's unhealthy because it's a zero carb diet. That's right. Like all of these critiques really provide this. Here is the entire you know, scientific validity behind this entire movement. Here it all is laid out and without making claims that can't be supported with the scientific literature. So where 
we where we have white rice and there's some pros and cons, like separating that out and putting in its own chapter and and really just saying, here's here's the limits of our knowledge. We don't actually know everything, but boy, we know a lot and we can make a lot of really good decisions based on what we do know. Um, and then the last was sort of reestablishing paleo mainstream. Um, I think in our community right now, we have a little bit of a shiny object syndrome. And um, and it's it's cool because one of the reasons why we have that is is because this community has grown so much over the last decade. Um, you know, the last estimates that I saw of number of people following it had us at, you know, 10 to 14 million Americans following paleo or some some highly related version of that primal or ancestral. And and so one of the things that's happened is as this community has grown is you've had this influx of um, ideas from other alternative health communities. Um, but I think that one of the things that's happened is the the sort of a uh, simple message of here's here's where you start and here's here's what to do has gotten very muddy. Um, so one of the things that I kind of wanted to do with this this book is uh, sort of reestablish the ground rules within this the context of this broad scientific um, education for understanding the whys behind those ground rules and then really develop the the tools for people to take that and really understand their own bodies so that they can figure out their own sort of shade of paleo that works for them rather than, um, a dogmatic agenda that everybody, yeah, yeah, exactly. Or these sound bites that I think really open up, um, our entire community to very valid criticism. When we say eat like a caveman, right. I like that. I want to kill that phrase. Like that is, just, yeah, yeah. you know, cause it's not, that's not what it's about. Um, so I, right. I really kind of wanted to, to bring us all to a center again, I mean, from which, you know, branching off, I think is great, but let's, you know, let's kind of have this more, a well-established starting place so that um, we don't have people coming in and being so confused about what is paleo and what isn't paleo that they then can't succeed. Got it. The book is Paleo Principles. Uh, if you want to find out more in advance or even after, um, uh, where can we find out about that, Sarah? So you can always find out um, everything about me and all of my projects at my website, thepaleomum.com. Um, Paleo Principles is already available for pre-order on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. It'll be available in bookstores everywhere this fall. And if you're looking for updates um, or more information, my website is, is the starting place. Great. And I'll look forward to seeing you very soon. Yes. Yeah, it's going to be cool. We're on a, a panel or two together, in fact. That's right. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, very interesting discussion. Again, opens up a whole – I love – you know, the, the operative phrase today was can of worms. A very, very rich source of protein. Rich source of protein, vitamin D, CoQ10, yeah. everything else. Um, yeah, so thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you guys for listening. This has been the Primal Blueprint Podcast for Malibu. We'll see you next time. Stay primal. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here. And I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. 
If you dream of a career in health coaching, but have been held back by worries, such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching. And we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe.